Welcome to the 35th episode of the Head Kick KO Podcast. Today we're taking a look at UFC 264. We're going to obviously start with Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. Then we're going to move into the other fights on the main card. And we're even going to touch on one of the fights off the prelims. After that, we're going to take a look at some of the big fights that have been announced as of late. And then we're going to end with next week's fight card of Islam Makhlchev versus Thiago Moises. So strap in because this episode is going to be a long one. And like I said, we're going to start off with Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. And by doing this, we're going to start with the fight itself. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. So at the beginning, I really liked the way Conor came out a lot more kick heavy in his approach this time. And he's obviously started off throwing several spinning, spinning hook kicks, spinning heel kicks. And he was throwing a lot of good teeps. Threw some leg checks, and I really liked how Conor was fighting for a good portion of the first round. Um, I think in in the time since the fight has ended, I think people have forgotten how good Conor looked at the beginning of that first round. Obviously, it went south, and it went south bad for Conor. And Dustin did look really good later. Um, he obviously... Was able to get to the fight to the ground, um, and he did that by landing some very good punches in the stand-up. He caught Connor clean, which caused Connor to initiate a clinch situation, and then he eventually tried to jump the guillotine. Delson Poirier got out of the guillotine and was on top and landed some very, very strong ground and pound for a large portion. I thought the fight was going to get stopped for a minute. And then um, Connor was able to, I guess Connor didn't, wasn't really able to get up. Um, he was eventually separated and Poirier stood up. And on the bottom, Connor was landing some good strikes as well. Obviously not as good as the elbows and hammer fists from Poirier. Poirier landed some very strong ground and pound. And Connor landed some sharp elbows off the bottom and a couple of up kicks. So it Connor did have some nice work off the bottom. Obviously, for Connor, I think it's safe to say that he'd rather be on the feet than landing strikes off the bottom. So, um, eventually, when the fight was brought back to the standing position, Connor threw a kick, and then when he put his foot back down, it looked like he landed on the outside of the foot, and the leg broke. Obviously, everybody knows that. Now, the question here is how did the leg break? Now, a lot of people are saying Poirier checked the kick, and I don't know exactly when that break was started, if Poirier did check a kick to cause that break, because I've seen about four different situations where people claim that that is where the break happened. There was a check at the beginning of the fight that people say when the one where Poirier pointed at Connor, people say that's when the break occurred. Some people, including John Kavanaugh, said the break occurred on the teep. I don't, th er, like, seconds before he the fight ended, um, the last teep kind of threw. That's when John Kavanaugh said it ended, and some people agreed with that. I don't think that's when it happened because when Connor throws that teep, the the foot and shin area of Connor does connect to Dustin's arm, but it seemed almost if, as if it was on the bottom, you know, upper half of the forearm. And in my opinion, that is such a soft spot 
that I don't think that that could cause a break of that, you know, magnitude. I mean, even if you just feel your forearm, it's going to feel a little bit softer. And even if you're ripped and have massive forearms, that is still not going to be as hard as your shin bone. And I don't think that that is where the break was caused. And I'm not trying to... um, I'm not trying to say that Poirier didn't cause the break to discredit Poirier. I just can't pinpoint the specific point of the fight where the break occurred. And I've seen people try to do it. And I don't think you're going to be able to find a convincing spot where the leg does break. Because I find it very difficult, even if you can find an area where the leg breaks. And then you'd be saying Kano was fighting on the broken leg for, you know a large period of time on the feet, and I don't think that is very likely. I mean, people love to discredit Connor's toughness, and no matter how tough you are, I don't think someone could fight on a broken leg like that without even realizing, and, you know, if the critique of Connor not being a tough fighter is true, then that would make it even less likely that Connor would be able to fight through a broken tibula. So... I don't think that we're ever going to know exactly how this break was caused. And something that I haven't seen talked about that I think could be a possibility is it is likely that Connor's leg had some damage going in. And I say that because the obvious storyline going into this fight was the last fight stopping via leg kicks. So I can imagine that Connor was trying to condition his shins so I imagine he did a lot of work kicking and to strengthen those shin bones and one of the best ways to um, strengthen your shin bones is to cause those micro fractures on the bone and then eventually um, those will heal and your shin will be stronger. And if you're familiar with Tony Ferguson's workout routine, that is something that you would have seen from Tony. Just there's the video of Tony kicking a metal post so his shin bones will strengthen. And if Connor was doing similar activities, even not even if they weren't as extreme as what Tony did, it, it is a possibility that one of those microfractures didn't heal correctly. And that kind of weakened his shins. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but that seems reasonable to me. If you don't heal properly doing that, then you're going to be in a compromised position going in. And then when he steps on the outside of the foot, it causes that break to happen. So it's possible that this happened, you know, that he had, you know, weak bones going in or he had a stress factor fracture going in and it's also possible that you know a stress fracture was caused and by Poirier during the fight but what I'm trying to say is that we can't pinpoint where this fracture first occurred all we know is that it ended the fight and that Connor's going to be out for a while so I don't think there's much of a point trying to speculate exactly where this injury happened because whether it was caused by Poirier or whether it was you know they're coming in both of those are very real possibilities but I don't think it makes a difference at the end of the day I don't think it changes the narrative of the fight because of how good Poirier looked even though Connor looked good at the beginning of the fight 
Poirier ended that round very strong, landing some great ground and pound. Two judges scored that fight a 10-8, and I'm not going to argue whether that was a 10-8 round or a 10-9 round for Poirier. That is very subjective as to whether you score that fight a 10-8 or a 10-9. I mean, some people scored the first round of Chandler and Oliveira a 10-8 when Oliveira had, you know, I think two minutes of time with after he took Chandler's back. So I think it's very hard to score that round a 10-8 when Oliveira is in a dominant position for more than a minute. So... You know, everyone has their own standards for a 10-8 and a 10-9 round, and it's very subjective the way it's written in the rules on whether it's a 10-8 or a 10-9. So I think it's very hard to come out and say exactly, um, was that a 10-8 or was that a 10-9? That's up to you and your personal preference. But at the end of the day, Poirier did win that round, and he looked very good in that round, and he won that round very convincingly. So... Um, with that being said, I don't necessarily think the fight was over. Could Poirier have gone out there and got a finish in the second round? Yes, and I wouldn't have been surprised. Could Connor have came back? That's possible. I wouldn't put my money on it. But I've seen crazier things happen in MMA than, you know, Connor coming back to win a fight when he lost the first round. I don't think that is something that, you know, is it unlikely? Yes. But is it out of the realm of possibility? No. So, that brings us to what is next for these guys. We're going to start with Dustin because that is a lot simpler of the situation. And I'm pretty sure it's very clear that he's going to fight Charles Oliveira for the lightweight belt. I mean, they interviewed Charles Oliveira directly after. And Dustin seemed like he wanted that fight. And Oliveira is not going to say no to a Dustin Poirier title defense. So, I think that is all but done. As long as it doesn't fall through in negotiations, and the money is right, that fight's going to happen, and I don't think there is much else to be said about that, we'll break down the X's and O's of that fight when we get closer, and how close are we to that fight, I think that fight will probably happen before the end of the year, I think Poirier got out of that fight with Connor, you know, not too hurt, he's going to want a training camp, so give him two months for a training camp and give him a time for vacation. And I think we'll end up seeing this fight, you know, in the fall or winter. If you look at the landscape of pay-per-views, that's obviously going to headline a pay-per-view. And as of right now, we've got paper li- pay-per-views headlined up until September, I believe. We're looking at Ortega versus Volkanovski for that September pay-per-view, and we'll talk about the co-main because that is in the um, that is in the news section that we'll talk about later. So the co-main will be talked about. You may know what I'm talking about. You may not, but we'll talk about that later. And But right now, October, November, December, one of those months, whichever one it works out to be, don't think it makes that much of a difference, but I think we're going to see this fight before 2022. And now for Connor. This situation is a lot more um, in depth for Connor as to what is next for Connor. Because I think there is two. I broke this down in my pre record planning in, in two separate kind of angles to this. One angle being 
a more realistic approach as to what Connor is going to do in the future. And the other one being a more extreme approach as to what I think Connor needs to do. And the second one being my personal opinion. But we'll start with the more realistic approach. The first thing connor has got to do is heal up. I mean, he had surgery today. He had a three and a half hour surgery. He had a rod and a plate and screws all put into his leg. It's going to be a long recovery. He says six weeks on crutches. I mean, even if he's on crutches for six weeks, then, you know, he's probably got rehab after. And by the time you get back in fighting shape and then you can do a training camp, he's not going to fight again until 2022 at the absolute best. And um, where do we go from there? What is next for Connor? I think that, you know, I talked about it a little bit uh, in our pre-UFC 264 episode, the aura of invincibility with Connor is gone and he's not as big of a, or he's not the same type of star that he was. Now we are yet to see if he is still a major star because win or lose, do people want to watch Connor fight? That is an answer that we won't know for a while. But I think it's safe to say that before Connor's next fight, it's still going to be a big fight. It's still going to be Connor Mania. It's still going to be all those things. Because now, no matter who Connor fights, it's going to be Connor's return after a devastating injury, which is something that we have never seen from Connor. And I think that is still going to sell, and I think he's still going to be a star outside of the octagon. Now, how does he perform inside of the octagon? We're going to have to wait and see. Now, I don't like doing this. I don't want to talk about a name for Connor when he returns because from now and to 2022, the division is going to be in a very different spot. It's going to look very different. Who knows what is going to happen in between now and the next time Connor is looking for a fight. But as of, we'll just talk about this as of right now because I think a lot of people are interested in it, even though I don't necessarily want to do this. But I think the clear, I think right now the clear option is D, Nate Diaz. And I think that Connor is in a position where the Nate Diaz trilogy is always the fight to burn when it's needed. It's never going to disappear because Diaz and Connor will always be stars. So you have that fight, and the question is, when do we use that fight? When do we burn that fight? And I think now has to be the time. Um, neither of these guys have won as of recently, so I think that we need to see this fight next for Connor, and I think it's going to be a little bit easier of a fight for him to handle. Um, I don't think leg kicks will play a big factor in, a, in any Nate Diaz fight. Well, Nate Diaz won't be offensively throwing leg kicks. Um, that's a better way to phrase that. And I think that could help Connor because he wouldn't have to worry. Say his return fight is against Justin Gaethje. Imagine having a broken leg and then going in to fight Justin Gaethje. He's going to kick you in the leg a million times as hard as he can. That's a lot more to bite off. And I'm not saying the return fight should be Gaethje at all. I don't want to see that fight, especially in a return fight, at all. If Connor would have won and got the belt and wanted to defend the belt against Gaethje, that's a whole different story. But 
um, in his return fight, I, I think Diaz would make a lot of sense because that leg kick aspect is gone, and it's still going to be a very big fight. It's going to be another trilogy fight, and it's going to be a return for Conor McGregor. And I think that's a very interesting angle for his return. And I think another option is a contender. And if you're looking to handpick opponents, I think the two that make the most sense at the way the the lightweight landscape is shaping up right now, I think the two names that really stick out to me are Tony Ferguson and Dan Hooker. And I would have thrown Paul Felder in there had he not retired. I'd imagine he'd be more than willing to unretire to fight Conor McGregor. So, um, you're probably asking me why those guys. And I'm going to actually address that in a minute. But, um... Because I had a very, um, very, I didn't just look at those names and go, oh, those guys would be cool. I really did think about this as a fight that would um, help Conor. And I think those two guys are two guys that Conor has a big chance of winning against. And um, they're not, they're relatively well-known. Tony's a lot more well-known than Dan Hooker. But Dan Hooker is still respected in the landscape of MMA. So we'll touch on that in a second, but um, and you'll you'll kind of get that when I get to that point as to why I named those two guys. So um, right now we're going to move on to the next kind of uh, split that we had, and that what is that is what do I think Connor needs to do? Now these are two very extreme things that I think Connor needs to do if he wants to make another run at a UFC belt. One. Both very unrealistic, and one, I don't even know if it's possible. So the first being he needs to cut John Kavanaugh, and they're not saying he needs to cut his whole team because um, Owen Roddy is a striking coach, I think is a very good striking coach, but John Kavanaugh as a head coach doesn't seem to be a great fit, and it's, I think they're just too good of friends at this point almost. They've been through a lot together, and I think that's why Connor doesn't want to cut John Kavanaugh but after the last three Connor losses, John Kavanaugh has came out and spoke about their game plan heading in. And he's 0 for 3 on the things he's talked about as being a part of the game plan. If you look at this fight, he said he thought Connor did very well in the first round. And he thinks he would have gotten the finish in the second round. Now, I don't... Now, that's probably what he would have told Connor in the corner. And I think that is just not the right attitude to have. In that situation, because Connor did not, he did look good at the beginning of the second round, or excuse me, the beginning of the first round, but he then proceeded to get ground and pound for a long period of time. So I'm not overconfident that he, and I think John Kavanaugh may be the only person that is confident in the fact that Connor would go out there and get a finish in the second round, because it just didn't look like the fight was trending in that direction in the slightest. And I think that just goes to show how big of a yes man, yes man he can be at times. And I don't think, actually I know that you don't want a yes man as a coach. You need someone who can help you and assist you and give you strong critique when you need it. And Connor did need some strong critique at the end of that first round, but it wasn't going to come if we did go to the second round. Now, and if you look at his individual game plans after this fight he has already talked about how he 
he was the person who came up with the game plan to jump the guillotine. How it was his idea, and he thought that was a whole Emporia's game. Now, jumping the guillotine did really, you know, start the end of that whole round because Connor wasn't able to get off bottom when the guillotine didn't work, and he and that led to the ground and pound shots that were incoming. Now we are. Now this, what makes this even worse is that Connor has looked very good in the clinch, and he looked good in the clinch against Poirier in the second fight. He landed some good elbows and some good shoulders in the clinch. So when Connor has looked good in the clinch, and I don't think that you want to jump guillotine. Even Connor did initiate the clinch exchange because Poirier landed a big shot that hurt him. I don't think that landing the, or I don't think going into the clinch was a bad idea, but jumping the guillotine, just stay in the clinch for a little bit longer, um, try and land some shots out of the clinch, and then jumping the guillotine just kind of, if it doesn't work, you're kind of screwed, and it seemed like a, it seemed like a, you know, last ditch effort in jumping the guillotine that I really, really, you know, disagree with, and I think Connor did have a better chance of landing that than a lot of people than a lot of people thought because even Poirier said I was going to let him get it deep and I don't know if I believe that. Um I don't think there's ever a situation where it's like, "Oh, I'll let him get the guillotine deep and then I then I could pass." But Poirier did say I was going to let him get it deep and then I, he, it was tight for a second. So I think that was a little bit closer than a lot of people were saying because Poirier did say, "Oh, he was worried for a second. So but as an overall game plan, something that you're looking for is a guillotine. I don't think that is great, especially when your fighter is Conor McGregor. Now, in the second fight, he was he said that he didn't think leg kicks were going to be a problem. And that is ridiculous because we've seen leg kicks on almost every major pay-per-view be a major factor in at least one of the fights. So for John Kavanaugh to say, oh, we didn't think leg kicks were going to be a problem, that's blasphemy and it doesn't make any sense and it eventually cost Connor that second fight against Habib he said they were content with staying on the ground staying on bottom and waiting for time to run out and then having it start on the feet the next round that led to Connor losing two of the three rounds that were scored and it led to his eventual submission loss in the fourth round so now I guess in that fight you can make the case that Connor wouldn't be able to get off bottom against Habib, which is a real possibility. But I think it's better to at least try and have it not work than just lay there and wait for the ref to save you and get to the next round. Because when you're laying on bottom, eating ground and pound, going, oh, we'll just wait for the next round to start. Doesn't seem that doesn't seem like that beneficial of a strategy and it didn't work out and Kavanaugh admitted that that was a bad strategy and they wouldn't do that in a rematch. So in Connor's last three losses we've seen major strategic holes from his head coach. So I think that Connor really needs to switch his I think that Connor really needs to switch his team and the people around him because it's proven that that may not be his best best path to victory having them in his corner so do I think that's going to happen no but do I think it would be beneficial if it did happen I do now the the more real the more unrealistic of the two and you may say oh cutting Kavanaugh was very unrealistic 
just wait till you hear this one. I think Connor needs to move back to 145 pounds. Now, I don't know how the weight cut went um, for him this camp. Do I think Connor can make 145? He probably can. But I think I think he needs to get dedicated, get a nutritionist, and really help him get down to 145. Because I think that a lot of the problems Connor's running into at 155 aren't going to be there at 145. And even in that last fight against Poirier, I look at that and go, okay, so what happened in that fight that Connor really struggled with? Connor got hit with a big hook by Poirier, and then eventually, you know, looks like it kind of stunned him a little, led to Connor going into the clinch and eventually jumping the gilly. Now, the other thing that hurt him was I think Poirier was bigger than him, and that helped Poirier um, control top position for the majority of that round while he had the opportunity. And so when you're looking at Connor who got hit, and I don't think no one at 145 has Poirier's power, right? And no one at 145 is going to be as strong as Poirier on the ground. Now you could say, okay, that's just a bad matchup for Connor at 140 or at 155. But just looking at the names at 155, everybody has those attributes. I mean, looking at the top of the division, you have Charles Oliveira. Now, Charles Oliveira doesn't directly have the two things I just listed in the power in the hands and the strength um, and the strength on the ground in terms of physical strength. But he is a very strong grappler in technique, and he can go out there and finish fights from the ground. So I think that would be a very bad matchup for Connor. And I know I know Oliveira finished his last fight via knockout, or it'd be a TKO from punches. But I think Chandler can be a little chinny, and I think he landed a perfect shot. Um, I don't think Oliveira should fall in love with his hands. But regardless of how much power he has, he would still be able to. Um, he would still be a very bad matchup for Connor at 155 pounds due to how good he is on the ground. Now, looking at the rest of the division, you have Gaethje, who's someone who has that power in his hands, and that fight probably wouldn't go to the ground at all. So I don't think we even need to discuss the the possibilities of. Gaethje's strength on the ground, but I think Gaethje is also a very terrible matchup for Connor because he'll kick that leg, he'll kick that leg hard, and when he connects to the head, he is going to hit hard. And if he couldn't, if if that shot from Poirier really hurt Connor, I think a shot from Gaethje would also really hurt Connor, and I think that fight would probably play out um, in a little bit of a similar fashion. But um, I think. He would have a better chance against Gaethje than Poirier because I think Gaethje is going to be a little bit easier for Connor to hit, but I still think that's a bad matchup. Looking at Daryush, Daryush would be able to probably control Connor on the ground. He also doesn't have the physical strength on the ground, but is a very good grappler in his own right. Looking at the rest of the division, Michael Chandler would be a very bad matchup for Connor because, you know, he's a very powerful striker. He's very strong physically on the ground, and it is also has good technique to pair with that because he was a D1 wrestler. So I think that would also be a bad matchup. 
And then you have number six, Tony Ferguson, who I don't think really has that strength on the ground, and I don't think he's as strong of a grappler as he used to be, and I don't think he has as much power in his hands. That's why I listed Tony about 10 minutes ago probably as one of the two guys I'd like to see kind of return against. And then at seven, you have RDA. I think a fight between RDA and a fight between in, in Connor, I think that would probably go similarly to Paul Felder versus RDA, where RDA has a lot of control time in the clinch, and I think that RDA would wear on Connor and eventually win that fight using grappling. And RDA also hits hard, but I think that would the grappling aspect would be a very hard matchup for Connor. And then you have Dan Hooker at eight, who is um, one of the two guys I listed as Connor wouldn't have as much trouble against in that division, one of the more beneficial matchups for Connor. And then at nine, you have Islam Makhlchev. And that is, you know, basically a nightmare matchup. He hits hard on the feet, and it is probably the best grappler. I don't, I don't want to call him the best grappler, but I think he is the strongest physically grappler, and he may be the best overall grappler. And, you know, Oliver is obviously a great grappler, and we've seen that at the highest level. But Islam is also a very good grappler, who I think he would be able to control Connor on the ground and win that fight. So that, and I don't think Connor, I'm going to stop it at the top nine, because I don't think he ends up fighting anyone after that nine spot. And those guys would all have to rise in the rankings. And then even then, Gregor Gillespie, great grappler. And everyone else probably isn't going to get in that top. They probably wouldn't. Everyone else after that probably wouldn't be able to work their way to the top 10 in time for Connor, Connor's return. But that is why I think Connor needs to move back down to 145. However difficult it is, I think he has a better chance against the likes of a lot of those guys. I mean, he would have... You know, I think he would have a better chance against Max Holloway because Holloway doesn't hit as hard. But I think Holloway would be able to wear down Connor through his um, through his cardio. And then Yair Rodriguez would be an interesting matchup. Calvin Cater does hit very hard, and that is one of the problems that we just listed previously. But um, and that would be a big disadvantage for Connor. Korean Zombie would probably be able to do some good groundwork. But then you have the likes of Arnold Allen. Arnold Allen would probably be willing to exchange with Connor on the feet. Josh Emmett on the feet. Dan Ige on the feet. Barbosa on the feet. Giga on the feet. Sadiq Yusuf on the feet. I haven't even mentioned Volkanovsky or Ortega. I don't think yet. Both them would be bad matchups. But I think he would have better a better chance against someone like Volkanovski. Even though Volkanovski is able to take opponents down when he needs to take them down, I think Connor would be able to stay on the outside for a good period of that fight and maybe get some better working off the outside. And but Volkanovski would come in with the best possible game plan to beat Connor as well. And I think that would probably, you know, play a lot into Volkanovski's favor as long as Connor is still with um, SBG Ireland. And then Ortega, obviously, great on the ground and has shown a lot of improvements on the feet. 
Um, well, I guess he's always been a great striker, but in his last fight, he landed a spinning elbow, looked tremendous on the feet. So um, I think he does have some bad matchups at the top of the division, but I think y- you have more more winnable fights there for Connor. And if you move to once, if he wants to go up, Usman is gonna hit hard, and he's gonna he's strong and technical on the ground. Colby is not gonna hit as hard, but he's gonna be able to take Connor down. Burns gonna be able to take Connor down. Leon Edwards would probably be the best matchup out of the top three for Connor. Stephen Thompson, you know, probably would be a little bit better of a matchup for Connor. Luke would be interesting. Chiesa would probably be able to take him down. Mazidal hits very hard. Well, so does Luke. So I think that Connor's best chance is at 145. And I think also 145 in comparison to 155 and 170, it's he's going to be able to. He's, his power is going to be more meaningful there. I think he still has power at 155. and But Poirier has ate some of his best shots in the last two fights. And is that Poirier's chin or is that Connor's power not being as effective at 155? I think both of those can be true at the same time. And looking at the chins of the guys at lightweight, I mean, Gaethje's tough guy to knock out. Michael Chandler, maybe you can clip him. He has had some struggles in the past, but I just think that 145, that power is going to be more meaningful, and the only guy with a chin that really just bounces off the page at 145 is Max Holloway, and um, the thing about Max Holloway is Max Holloway probably wouldn't be as likely to land a you know big shot that puts Connor away. He would, it would be more attrition, and I think Max would win that fight. But I think he's got a better shot against Max than he does against Gaethje, just looking at the tops of the division. So um, those are the two things that I think Connor really needs to do. Do I think he does either of those those things? I do not, but I think he needs to. And I have one last thing that I want to talk about from this Connor fight, and this is basically just Connor's attitude. And I'm not talking about his post-fight interview, and I'm not talking about his pre-fight press conferences. Looking purely from his walkout to the fight starting, we saw Connor do his walkout, and he looked very intense. But the thing I noticed is that intensity didn't stay. He looked a lot more nervous in the cage. He did some stretches, and the intensity didn't quite seem there. It almost seemed like he was putting on a face in the walkout and at the stare down. I don't think that truly inside Connor has the same attitude, but I think he's trying trying to portray that attitude to the fans. Just if you look at that walkout from when he walks out to when the fight starts, if you look at the small details of Connor in in passing, you know, not in um not in the big big moments in passing when you know even when Poirier was walking out and they cut the camera to him just looking at his face he doesn't seem as confident um I think one of the biggest lines in UFC history in terms of commentary is when Joe Rogan is talking about the 
the emotions of Connor and the emotions of Aldo prior to the Aldo fight. Joe Rogan said, it looks like Connor is like, I don't remember exactly what he said about Connor, but he said, it looks like Connor is like, you know, not phased by the moment or he's, or something along those lines. And he said, it looks like Poirier is feeling the pressure of the moment. And I think there was a similar attitude there in the 155-pound fight for the championship against Eddie Alvarez. And those are probably Connor's two best performances, being Alvarez and Aldo. Now, I don't think that same attitude is there going into this fight or going into the last fight or going into the Cowboy fight. Um, a little bit tougher to say in the Habib fight. I think it was a different attitude than he had. Not the same one we're seeing now. I think that Habib fight is a little bit of an outlier in terms of attitude and skills and things like that. Not because Connor wasn't, not because he wasn't focused or wasn't motivated. It was because he was coming off, you know, had not fighting in MMA for a while. And then, you know, there was a big gap after the Habib fight. So I think that Habib fight is kind of isolated in terms of mindset for Connor. And I think in this fight, he just didn't have the same attitude and outlook on the fight as he did in past. And it's very hard to notice and it's very hard to tell. But I think if you watch that fight closely, and like I said, from the walkout to when the fight starts, if you just watch that and observe Connor, I don't think that's the same as the Connor we saw versus Aldo and the Connor we saw versus Alvarez. And I don't think that Connor can go in and win like the or I don't think the Connor that we have now with that attitude can go in and win like the one against Aldo and Alvarez did and I think he's going to have to find that mindset because whether and this isn't you know old Connor new Connor you know per se like I just I kind of made it seem like that but I think that for combat I think for athletes in general and for specifically combat sports is probably even more like this, but I think you have to find the attitude and the mindset that leads you to victory. And I think you need to stay in that attitude and mindset. I mean, some people, everybody is different going into that situation. Some people, you know, you've got like a Robert Whitaker who, you know, bangs on his chest. Other fighters are, you know, a lot more calm and composed right before that moment happens. I think everyone needs their own mindset that works for them. And I think Conor has lost that mindset that did work for him. And I think he needs to find that again. And I don't, I'm don't. i not saying that finding that mindset all of a sudden he's a world champion. But I think that is just, I think he's so far off the path of where he needs to be. I just think that is one of the things that can bring him closer to, you know, continued success in the UFC. So, um... I think that is all I have for Connor and Poirier. I don't want to talk about what Connor said after the fight. I don't want to talk about Poirier, you know, kind of taunting Connor while he was injured. Um, because no matter what your opinion is on those things, that's your personal opinion. And there's going to be someone with a different opinion who's going to attack you for your own personal opinion. So I try not to. Go, and those are things that are outside of fighting. You know, I gave my opinion on what Connor needs to do to improve, but I don't think I need to 
give my opinion on you know how you should act in defeat or how you should act in victory I think everyone has their own opinion on that and me sharing mine is you know a little a little pointless because no matter how I share my opinion or how I phrase it you're gonna have your own opinion and you're either gonna agree with me disagree with me you know maybe be neutral on my opinion but it's not gonna affect your own personal opinion and it and it doesn't in the long-term scope of things it that opinion doesn't have any difference on whether Connor wins or loses or whether Poirier wins or loses. So I'm just going to not talk about that. And I think that makes, you know, the internet a little bit less toxic, especially Twitter. So we're just going to stay out of that and try and just talk about the X's and O's for that Connor and Poirier fight. But with that being said, we're all done talking about Conor and Poirier. Now we're going to look at some of the other fights on the main card. We're not going to talk about those fights for 40 minutes like we just did Conor versus Poirier. But um, first fight we're obviously going to talk about is the next fight, the co-main, that being Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Gilbert Burns, where Gilbert Burns came in with probably the best possible strategy for fighting Wonderboy, and he played that strategy to a T and got a victory. That's all you have to do in MMA. Gilbert Burns made it look a lot easier than it is, but he was able to do that. Came in with the best strategy you could come in with. Congrats to him and his coaches for that. And congrats to Gilbert Burns for effectively employing that strategy and sticking to it throughout the fight. Regardless of what that strategy is, if you think it's boring watching grappling, and specifically um, more non-active and control-based grappling, um, you know... It's not worth losing a fight because you're trying to be entertaining, and especially against Wonderboy because when he can, he's too dangerous. He's just too dangerous, and we saw that when he landed that heel kick, spinning heel kick. When someone can do that, you don't want to play with them. And for Wonderboy, actually, we'll talk about, um, yeah, 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 we'll talk about Wonderboy next. Wonderboy is. Did still look very good. I was impressed with um, the moments he was on his feet. Obviously, I'm not going to crucify Wonderboy for not being able to stop a takedown when he's going up against an all-time great, well, one of the best current jiu-jitsu practitioners in the UFC, who's very, very physically strong. And it's not going to be easy to stop a takedown. He couldn't do it, really. But, you know, that's the UFC. And... I don't think Wonderboy is done at all. I, you know, sometimes someone of Wonderboy's age loses, and you're like, uh, retirement. You know, I haven't heard the word retirement once, and I don't think we should because Wonderboy is still an elite, elite, elite 170-pounder. He just isn't that top three. He's still a top ten guy. He's just not the top two. He's not. He's not top one. He's not top two. He's not top three, and, you know, I just think that for him, you know, he he can still make a run at the top, but I don't think that's going to happen right now. And what's next for Wonder Boy? That's a good question. The 170-pound division is pretty booked up right now. So And what happens with Gilbert Burns and what happens with Wonderboy kind of go hand in hand here. Because 
we all first thing we have to figure out is who is Usman gonna fight. If Usman at this point is it doesn't look like it's gonna be the Burns rematch. I think we either see the Covington rematch or we see the Leon Edwards rematch. And that's not to say that Kobe Covington is more deserving than Gilbert Burns, but I just think that's a more likely fight we see because I think that's the fight that Dana would rather see. So, we have four guys, Usman, Covington, Edwards, Burns. I think those guys are going to get matched up in just some fashion without it being Burns versus Usman like I just said. But if we see Colby versus Usman, I think we see Burns versus Edwards. If we see Usman versus Edwards, I think we see Covington versus Burns, or Covington sits out until he can fight Usman. So, I don't think Masvidal is going to come into play for this. Um, maybe Edwards versus Masvidal. I don't think we see Burns versus Masvidal. Just doesn't really make too much sense. Um, I think at least with Masvidal versus Edwards, you've got a rivalry there that you can sell. So, that's my opinion on that. And then we had Ty Tuivasa versus Greg Hardy. Where Greg Hardy made the mistake of trying to rush in after getting after rocking Ty Tuivasa. Ty Tuivasa made him pay with a hook. And, you know, the ground and pound, the performance, the KO was great. It was amazing. I loved it. And Tai Tuivasa topped it off with not one shoey, not two shoey. Maybe he did about 12 of them before he got. The dude, the dude downed a six pack before he got back to the locker room. Did one on a cage. That was epic. He did one where the dude dr- poured um, Poirier's hot sauce in it. That was disgusting, and I think Tai Tuivasa agrees. But hey, pretty legendary. And then he had another dude pour beer in his mouth from um, from the stands into his mouth. And there might have been another shoey in there that I'm missing. But regardless, Tai Tuivasa is an electric human being. Regardless. Love that guy. With a great knockout, great post-fight, you know, celebrations. And I think he, I don't know if he gets a ranked guy next. I don't know what's next for Tai Tuivasa. I think you can easily make the case. But I think we live in an era of the UFC where fighting the 15th ranked guy, waiting, waiting four months to fight the 15th ranked guy probably isn't as good of an idea as just taking someone who's borderline outside the rankings and fighting him a little bit sooner. But... um. I think Walt Harris would probably be an interesting matchup because Walt Harris has lost a couple in a row, so he's probably going to have to fight an unranked guy next. And I think if you're looking at an unranked heavyweight who needs to fight a ranked guy, I think Tai Tuivasa is about as good as they come. Now, for Greg Hardy, what do we do with Greg Hardy? Everyone wants Greg Hardy cut. I want Greg Hardy to stay in the UFC. If Greg Hardy wants to throw bombs and, and get KO'd half the time, um, I'm fine with watching that. It's okay with me. I'm not going to complain about watching Greg Hardy get KO'd. So hopefully they just uh, keep Greg Hardy in the UFC and keep throwing him against power punchers. Like, power punchers at heavyweight. Like, not like, uh, like all everyone at heavyweight's a power puncher. But I mean guys with uh, big power 
for the heavyweight division. So uh, that's what I hope is next for Greg Hardy. Maybe uh, Tanner Bozer wouldn't be a bad guy. I know Tanner Bozer's got to win and should probably move up in the rankings and do something to further his career. Or you could take a pit stop and KO Greg Hardy, and I uh, sounds good to me. So I think Tanner Bozer would probably have a good time doing that too. Gets to add a KO to his record. Speaking of adding KOs to the record, Irina Aldana. She's just got some wild KO power for that women 135-pound division. I think, you know, she has, I think two of her last three fights have ended with her landing a, this one was a check left hook that eventually led to her win. I don't remember if her last one was a check left hook or just a normal left hook or what we were, or a normal hook, or I don't remember exactly what it was. But um, she does always. Yeah, Ketlin Vieira, she landed a KO in the first round. Two of her last three have been KOs in the first round, and that's not something that you normally see in women's MMA. It's just less common. You don't see it as much. But I am more than okay with seeing it happen. Irene Aldana, you know, she wasn't able to beat Holly Holm, but I still think she's one of the best in that division, and I think she has a lot of talent. Holly Holm just came in with a game plan to, you know, have a lot of fence control time, and it worked. She got a win. So I think that Irene Aldana is probably one or two fights from a title. I think an Aspen Ladd fight makes a lot of sense. You maybe could do Jermaine Durandamy. Or is Jermaine Durandamy fighting at 145 right now? Don't remember. But someone ahead of her in the rankings, she's at four right now. Not the Holly Holm rematch. So that leaves you Nunez, and I don't think she's going to get the title fight next. Or Jermaine Durandamy. And Espen Ladder, the other two. So I think that one is uh, pretty simple for what is next for Irene Aldana. Now we have the Sugar Show, Sean O'Malley. He beat Chris Montino very, very badly. And Chris seems like a cool dude, and he's one tough guy. But what Sean. What Sugar Sean did in this performance was wild. His ability, he, he stayed composed. A lot of guys are going to crack. I mean, I don't know how he backpedaled for the whole fight, landing ones, twos, kicks, and really just touching up Chris. And he didn't, you know, a lot of guys, their, their conditioning is just out the window after that first round. But Sean O'Malley, who stayed active with his hands and had to be active with his feet, staying out of the attacking, you know, staying because when you're getting pressured that much, just being on your bike the whole time, going backwards is so, so tiring. And then punching to boot. I mean, what Sean O'Malley did was really tremendous because not a lot of guys would be able to do that. Not a lot of guys would be able to, you know, keep their cardio and composure where it needs to be. And, also for Chris, not a lot of guys take that many punches from Sean O'Malley. Not a lot of guys can eat that. So I'm very impressed with both guys for very different reasons. For Sean, it was his performance and talent. For Chris, it was his pure heart and toughness. Now, what is next for Sean O'Malley? I don't think we see a ranked guy for Sean O'Malley next. As much as people get upset with him being a can crusher 
Don't rush it. I hate rushing prospects. That sounded like I said I hate rushing prospects, but I hate rushing. Give prospects their time. Let them develop. I think that if you want to give them a ranked guy, don't throw them all the way up there with Cody Garbrandt or Dominic Cruz or, you know, one of those guys in the top 10. If you want to give him a ranked guy, Kyler Phillips, Cody Stimmon, Marlon Vera, you know, Jimmy Rivera, even Jimmy Rivera is very good. Rafael Asuncao maybe a little bit. But, you know, 135 is so deep where you can find talented guys outside of the rankings. So I think that is probably the better direction to go. And looking at some of those names, hopefully we look at some of these names if it is you know if my computer will load i will look at some of the guys who are just outside the top 15 come on come on okay but regardless for sean o'malley i don't want to see him rushed i would much rather see sean o'malley develop and you know get a little bit better because I still think he has some holes, but I don't want for Sean O'Malley to be put in a position where he takes off, he bites off too much, and he, you know, gets gets put in bad positions. That's just not something that I'm interested in seeing, and I think that Sean O'Malley is someone who we need to watch grow. And I think that's the best way for Sean O'Malley to kind of look going forward. You know, maybe, I guess, you know what? I'd like I'd like someone around the 15 spot. Maybe like, maybe like a Song Yudong or a Honey Barcelos, you know, for Sugar. I don't want to see him against a big-name guy next. I think he needs one more before he gets to that big-name opponent. And he name dropped Cody Garbrandt. I think Garbrandt's moving now to 125, so that's kind of a pointless call-out. But regardless, speaking of top prospects, we had two of them going up against each other at 145, one being Ila Tuporia, the other being Ryan Hall. Now, what did we see in this fight? I think we saw a fighter in Ila Tuporia who is very talented in terms of his composure I talk about composure a lot, but I think it's an important trait to have, and I love seeing it in younger fighters. And I think Tuporia proved that he has that trait. Um, I think he's proved that in previous fights, but I think he just, you know, kind of cemented it here. In the past, he showed very good finishing instincts and, you know, didn't make the mistake of jumping in and getting rocked. You know, he'll mix it to the body. And I think that in this fight, you know, when you've got Ryan Hall doing the wacky stuff he was doing, um, being able to find this situation where, okay, now is the time. Now is when I attack. Now I'm out of danger. Now I can throw ground and pound it on this fight, and that's what he did. On the feet, he still landed some good shots. He landed several body shots that I really liked. I think he landed a straight right. That was very good, if I remember that correctly. So... For the little we saw of Ila Tuporia, it was all very positive. For Ryan Hall, Ryan Hall, if you want to take the fight to the ground, takedowns. 
takedowns, takedowns. Um, he can. He just needs to drill his takedowns. Get better at takedowns. Be willing to shoot for a takedown. Be willing to enter the clinch to go for a takedown. That's really the effective ways to get the fight to the ground. Trying to go for imminent roll, imminent roll, heel hook, heel hook. It's not a great for sustain, sustained success. Can we throw a strike other than you know a kick to the body and a spinning heel kick? It's just, I wasn't impressed, but he does have talent, so I don't want to write him off completely. And it might have been ring rust because he's been out two years, and much of people say ring rust, ring rust doesn't exist. I think in some situations it can. And I know Ryan Hall said it doesn't, but the way he went in there and fought made it seem like he had a little bit of ring rust. So let's not completely write him off. I don't think he's done yet. And... What's next for these guys? I like Ila Teporia versus Alex Caceres. Ila Teporia has looked really, really good, and I think he's proven that he can take the next step at 145. And I think Caceres is someone who isn't an overwhelming you know, force, who I think um, you're not throwing him into the shark tank right away. As much as he's fighting a ranked opponent, he's not fighting someone who's unbeatable. He's fighting someone who is tough and can put up a challenge, but someone who he can also go in and beat. And I think that is just what is next for Ila Teporia. And I think that he's got a long future in the UFC, and I think he's just another one of the great bantamweight, or excuse me, featherweight prospects. And I think he might be the best of the lot. So that is everything that I have to talk about for UFC 264. This episode is long. It's a long one. I'm sorry. So, we are going to run through these fight announcements very quickly. Very, very quickly on these fight announcements. I'm not even going to talk about my opinions on them, except for one of them I'm going to share my opinion. The other ones I'm just going to give you the fight announcement. We're going to go in order by date. The date that the fight takes place. Hafeo Fazid versus Bobby Green is taking place on August 7th. Sean Brady versus Kevin Lee is going to take place on August 28th. Paul Craig, Paul Craig versus Alexander Gustafson at light heavyweight. Gus is back at light heavyweight on September 4th. This is the one I'm going to talk about. Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. This is not confirmed, but Ariel said there's a 90 to 95% chance this takes place in a co-main event at UFC 266 in September on September 26th. Now, um... I think this is a very good fight for Nick Diaz. The other fight that I would have liked would have been Tony Ferguson, but Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler makes a lot of sense. And if Nick Diaz can go in there and beat Robbie Lawler, he's still got a spot on the UFC roster. So let's see if he can do it. Now, Tatiana Suarez versus Roxanne Mataferi, September 25th. Now, here's the deal. Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler is set to play take place on September 22nd. Tatiana Suarez versus Roxanne Malaferi on September 25th. So, one of three things is happening. Either the UFC is doing a Wednesday card where Tatiana Suarez and Roxanne Malaferi will fight, or I'm an idiot and made a mistake putting the date from Twitter to my computer. Okay, that's very possible. Or Third, the reporter 
who I saw report this, which I think this was an MMA junkie report that I got this from, or they're an idiot and put the wrong date. So either I'm an idiot, the reporter's an idiot, or the UFC is having a Wednesday card. One of the three. Regardless, Tatiana Suarez versus Roxanne Mataferi taking place in September. Or maybe, you know, it's taking place. It might not be in September because I'm not sure when the date is. And then Kevin Holland versus Chris Dawkins. Versus Chris Dauskis on October 2nd. Third time's a charm. Jamal Hill versus Jimmy Crute on October 2nd. And Mariana Rodriguez versus Mackenzie Dern on October 8th. That is everything we've got for fight announcements. Now, we're going to look forward to next week's card, which is headlined by Islam Makhlchev versus Thiago Moises. Both of these guys look very good. In their last fights, I was very impressed with both of them. Islam Makhlchev, I think, is going to win this fight. I think he is a tremendous grappler, a tremendous grappler, and a complete martial artist. And I think he's going to be in the, be able to go in there and get a win. And I think that win will propel him to the top, you know, a little bit higher, I guess. You know, the elites of 155. That's what I think is next for Islam. But Moises has the opportunity to come in here and steal all his shine. It's going to be interesting to see if he can do it. I don't think he will. But it'd be very interesting if Moises won because a lot of people are very high on Islam. So let's see how that plays out. Then we have the return of Misha Tate versus Marion Renault. Bantamweight. If Misha Tate can make a run at Bantamweight, it makes that division a lot more interesting. Then at lightweight, we have one of the top lightweight prospects in Matez Gamrat fighting Jeremy Stevens. If Jeremy Stevens loses this fight, we're going to be hearing that dreaded R word. And if Matez Gamrat can win, he's going to have a chance to fight one of the big names. Or he he's going to be borderline ranked at 155 if he can win this fight. He, I, I he's already in that pile of really really good fighters that aren't ranked at 155, and there's about 20 of those guys. You could almost do you could almost do three sets of rankings at 155 with the top 15 being elite, elite fighters, then the next 15 being some really, really good fighters, and then the next 15 being above-average fight. You could really do that at lightweight. Right now, Gamrod is in that second section of some really, really good guys who aren't ranked. And I think he's got the chance to move out of that top 15 and get to the highest 15. Then we have Rodolfo Vieira versus Dustin Stoltzfus. Vieira might be a good bet person to bet against just because of how you know his cardio didn't hold up in his last fight but i'm going to be interested because he is so good at jiu-jitsu he's always someone that you have to watch now um gabriel benitez versus billy quarantillo quarantillo is a really good fighter and i he's an underdog here but that should be an interesting fight that i'm really excited for then on the prelims, Danielle Rod- Daniel Rodriguez, who looked very good in his last fight with Mike Perry. Now, that's about all I have for this week's episode of the Head Kale Podcast. Now, before this episode ends, before we end this episode of the Head Kick Kale Podcast, cross your fingers. Say a prayer if you're religious. If you're not religious, I don't know. 
what what you're gonna do. But on Saturday, July 14th, only two weeks away, we are supposed to see Corey Sandhagen versus T.J. Dillashaw. Now I've done this once. I looked ahead to a a card one time that was more than two weeks away. I did it once, and it was Sandhagen versus Dillashaw. And that fight was later canceled, I think, on the same day. And I'm doing it again. I am so ridiculously excited for Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. This is a dream fight. There are few fights that I could make in my head that I would rather see than Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. I am doing my best to contain my excitement, but Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw has the chance to be the fight of the year. It's also got a chance to end be a be a vicious knockout because Corey Sanhagen is that dude. It's also got a chance that TJ Dillashaw can go out there and win by knockout because he's also very very good. That fight is so important in terms of entertainment because it's going to be fun. The landscape of the division because the winner should fight for a title, but we are currently waiting on Aljamain Sterling to re- be recovered from his injuries so he can fight Piotr Jan. So we don't even know who the champ will be when these dudes fight for the championship. But the winner... Is going to have a chance to fight for the championship. Got to. Got to. And they've got a chance to fight for fight of the year. I am excited for this. And I had to say it. Because I cannot contain my emotions. When it comes to Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. And now. That I have made that announcement. And I have said that. I am going to thank you for watching this episode. Of the Head Kick Kale podcast. And make sure you come back next week. Because next week. We are going to break down this fight card of Islam Makhlchev versus Thiago Moises. We're going to talk about any other news, and we're going to break down the following week's fight card, which is, like I just said, Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. So make sure you tune in for that episode. And once again, thank you for watching this episode. Goodbye.